0: Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris.
1: Welcome back, guys. I am very excited to be joined by a very special guest today. Joseph Pascone, host of Turning Tides History Podcast, and he did a really special episode or a series of episodes on the Attica Uprising from the early 1970s. And I thought that that tied together really well with what we're talking about in organized crime and the punishment aspect of organized crime as well, and crime in general. So thank you so much for coming on, Joe. Uh, If people have listened to my other podcast, the History of the Papacy podcast, Joe Pascone did a really helpful primer on the Risorgimento, and he has a really detailed series on that. So definitely go and check
0: those out and then check out all of his other work as well. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Steve. And yeah, I did a maybe a bit too detailed of a series on the risk argumento, but, but I, I definitely did it. It was a lot of fun. And, and the Attica one just came out. Uh, and I'm just chugging along here over on my end. Well, I- I think that
1: this is a really interesting topic, the Attica uprising, because it brings together so many threads of society, crime, and in a lot of ways, it's touched our lives personally, being New Yorkers who yeah. are expats from New York, <laughs> and so it gives us, a. I think we have a very interesting way to look at this objectively and subjectively, especially being that it's. The incident happened well before either of us was born. So I think we have a little bit of perspective on it, but it's also close to both of us as well.
0: Yeah, in a a historical sense, it happened yesterday, basically. It may as well have. It happened, the retaking and the uprising happened in a few days in September 1971 at, like you said, Attica. And this wasn't like an insular event. This was kind of a culmination of... Basically the 60s, this was all the best and the worst parts of the 60s kind of thrown into a pot and it just sort of exploded over into the deaths of 44 people. And it was probably the biggest mass shooting, if you could call it that, up until the present day. Uh, And it was completely sanctioned by the state. I think the best place you could probably start the story is I started, at least in my series, with 1865, because that to me is when race relations sort of start in America. Previously to that, there were a handful of of free African-Americans, sure, but the vast, vast majority were enslaved peoples who were treated literally like property. The Supreme Court decided these people were property. You could bring them across state lines, just like you could bring a chair across a state line, and it still counts as yours. Um After the Civil War, millions and millions of free blacks were given the right to vote. They were given civil rights. They were uh, elected to Congress, they were elected as representatives. They were elected as governors. In 1870, there was a black governor in Louisiana, for example. Uh, once reconstructing, re- reconstruction sort of ends with Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, that's it. Uh, all the reforms of the previous era go out the window. Uh, black codes, Jim Crow laws, they come into effect, not just in the South, but in the North as well. It's, it's, it's just the segregated, in the north as it is in the south, just in a different way. It's not the same overt racism like, oh, this is the good old south, so this is how it's going to be. It's, oh, well, you know, your economic status is maybe a little lower than mine because because of whatever reason. And because of that, you need to live in this much worse neighborhood than I get to live in. So that's where the idea or the start of Attica kind of happens. Now, Attica State is built in The height of the Great Depression, Um, it's in 1931. It's finished in a year, or less than a year. Uh, For the time, it was a state-of-the-art institution. But basically what happens is over time, the facilities just degrade because time passes. It's 40 years later. It's the late 60s, early 70s. And Attica is a much worse place to live. It's way overcrowded. There's about 2,000 people there. Uh, in a facility that was probably only built to withstand maybe a 1,200 tops. Uh, And you see in America the continual rise of radicalization. The Vietnam War has started. Um, JFK has been assassinated. Nixon has been elected in a very, very controversial uh, presidential election. You see police riots, uh, the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, you see um, attacks on civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement. You see the Klan uh, come back with a a new renewed force, which was super powerful, caused millions of black people to leave the South in the pre or in the post-Civil War era. Uh, And these all kind of, all these forces kind of come together into a very disgruntled population. And it wasn't just for political reasons, there were obviously political prisoners who were deeply interested in Black liberationist movements and and anti-war movements, and were kind of the the, the rock bed of the the uprising that's about to happen. But for the most part, there were just uh, regular people who done a, the wrong thing in their life, and for the most most part, they were kids. Like, for example, John Hill, who is the accused killer of William Quinn, he was in Attica because he turned 19 while he was still in juvie. He didn't, like, you know, rob a bank and then, you know, set fire to an orphanage or something. He, that's all that happened. He was in juvie because, I don't know, he could have stole something from the store that was five cents. Um, another guy, Charles Pernasalis he was in Attica because he didn't inform his parole officer about an out-of-state trip and that's how he ends up in, in Attica. So it wasn't just cut and dry, oh, this is a place for murderers, this is a place for rapists. That's what it turns into. That, that's what the, the press and, and the state tries to turn this place into. It's just this horrible, horrible place. And eventually it even becomes that And uh, after this period. People talk about Attica as a really dangerous place even today. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting because it, the, the uprising takes place during a bunch of other uprisings and a big mess of problems throughout the country. In 1970, in Soldad prison, there's a guy called George Jackson. He was a very famous prisoner slash uh, political uh, activist. He, he wrote uh, a book called The Letters from Soldad, where he talks about his experiences in jail Basically, what happens one day is a, a CO or a guard, a corrections officer, CO, uh, sees something in his hair. Apparently, George Jackson somehow, I don't know how this happened, he got a, a wig, and under the wig, he managed to sneak in a pistol. We still don't know how this happened, but in the ensuing, he takes out the pistol. He says, the dragon has come. Three people are dead by the end of it, uh, or... Or two guards are dead, and then three prisoners are dead, and George Jackson's among them. The people at Attica who have heard about this uprising through the the chain of information, um, they instantly assumed that this was a, a police shooting. They 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 assumed that it was trigger happy guards who who gunned down George Jackson. Uh, we still don't know exactly how he got the gun. It seems very it's a it's a very far fetched story either way. Um, but they were convinced that this was. You know, uh, because of the prison guards. Also down the street, there's Auburn state penitentiary. There's a massive uprising there. The black Muslim population takes the lead in the uprising. They take hostages. Uh, the guards promise there's not going to be any reprisals. Just give up. Uh, the apparatus who are in charge of the prison say, no, there are going to be repra- reprisals, reprisals, and everyone gets thrown in, in keep lock or solitary confinement. And a bunch of these instigators are sent to Attica. These are called the Auburn Six. And these guys interject the population with a new surge of uh, uh, politi- pop politics and uh, radicalism that they didn't experience before. So you see all these um things come together and it's September 9th. Basically what happens is the day before in D yard or A yard, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a play fight between two prisoners. One of the prisoners runs away when he sees that guards interpret it as a real fight, and they're coming to question him. He says, leave me alone. I just got out of keep lock. I was there for 14 days. I'm just trying to let loose. He says, no, you're going, the guard says, no, you're going back to keep lock. So instantly incendiary uh, situation, a tussle starts. In the end, the prisoner, gets away because the other guards see that there's a very dangerous situation, uh explosive situation building up. They'll deal with this at another time. So that night, they come and grab the two prisoners. Uh, one guy is dragged out unconscious, uh, so they have to like really b- beat him pretty badly to get him out of his cell. Everyone else in the cell block is convinced that this person's dead, so they start throwing things at the CO. One guy gets hit in the face with a soup can. So then, it's even it's even more raucous. The head CO he goes to to his boss. He says, "Look, let me keep some guys over, over time so that we can make sure that there's not going to be a incendiary situation." And and his boss says, "Who the hell's going to pay for that?" Well, that that was his main argument, which I guess is fair, but in hindsight, probably should have been the last thing on that guy's mind, considering. The level of problems at the prison. Um, that morning, everyone's going to breakfast. The person who threw the soup can the day before gets sprung from his cell, uh, when the guard's not looking. So you have 60, 70 people who are all pissed at you and you're in charge of them as this guard. It was a lose lose situation. Either you try to act like their buddy or you try to act, you know, like an authoritarian. If you're in that situation, uh, you talked about Mike Smith before, he was someone who chose to act like, give, give people respect, because he realized that that's the only way they're both going to get through this at the end of the day, and both have some sort of semblance of a, a decent time. Um, uh, so this guy gets sprung, and they, the state apparatus, the prison apparatus, decide they're going to send the whole 50-person squad the whole 57 the the whole 50 person regiment back to back to their cells they're going to stay in solitary confinement uh when they go to corner them in a place called Times square it's sort of like the central corridor for the whole prison uh the prisoners realize what's going on the guards are too slow on their uptake because there's no communication one way or the other and riot explodes uh guards are attacked. The door to Times Square is forced open using the plumbing system from the the, the the prison's water system. Like water pipes are used to to jimmy a door the door open. William Quinn is on the other side of this door. Um he's he's in charge of the who gets in and out. Uh he surrenders, but he gets overwhelmed and he gets attacked by a whole gang of people that uh, and their landing blows on him and in no time at all, he's severely, severely wounded, uh, unconscious, bleeding from his face, his head, his mouth, uh, all over the place. He's, he's a, a bloody mess. Uh, and then the prisoners go all over wherever they can go. They try to arm themselves. They try to grab as many hostages as possible. And at this time, this is one of the few times you could call this a riot. This is when the riot was happening. Uh, in these first hours, there's a lot of, of, of rape. There's, there's at least two instances of it. Uh, there's a lot of instances of assault. Um, there's no murders or anything besides William Quinn, who's severely injured. Um, but very quickly you see black, the black Muslim population and the politically minded prisoners take the lead in trying to organize everybody. So they, everyone sort of finds themselves in D yard. Um, and they quickly draw up elections and they, they decide on leaders uh, from each different cell block, from all the, there's something like 1,200 prisoners in the D, uh, D-yard right now, while the rest of the prison, everyone else ran to their cells because they didn't want to be involved in any of the violence. Um, but about half the prison is is in D-yard at this moment. And things are, are very tense. They ask for a doctor, they ask for food, et cetera, and they want observers They want observers from across the country, uh, people who are associated with the black liberation movement, with the civil rights movement, uh, radical politics, radical lawyers, and a bunch of these people. And they range the gamut. There's not just radicals there, but there are plenty of radicals there. Uh, there's like, um, there's liberal minded Republicans. There's, uh, there's, uh, Democrats from across the spectrum. There are, radical lawyers like William Kunstler, who defended the Chicago Seven. Uh there's people like Tom Soto, who was a member of Yoff, which was the Youth Against the War and Fascism. They were members of the Vietnam veterans against the war, uh, etc. It was a it was a coming together of of maybe not center and left uh people who wanted to see an end of this hostile situation before it devolved into serious, serious violence and or it devolved into a massacre. Um, because the second, the uprising happened, that was the first thing that everyone was thinking, like, how do we take back to prison? What do we do? And so they start calling in police from across the state. They start bringing in armaments. Uh, they bring in rifles, they bring in shotguns. Uh, they're waiting. The main thing they're waiting for is a thing called CS gas. Um, and that'll be used devastating effect down the line. So there are, there's this situation now. And the observers are showing up slowly but surely. And eventually they come to an agreement. Uh there's twenty-eight points that they can agree on. One thing they can't get a judge to sign off on is amnesty for the prisoners. Because they want amnesty, because at Auburn they were promised amnesty, they didn't get it. So they want it in writing from a real judge that they're not gonna face reprisals or or, or legal repercussions for for the uprising that they that took place because with William Quinn's condition deteriorating by the minute uh there was a very good likelihood that he was going to die and the death of a CEO carries with it uh a death sentence if you're found guilty and given the 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 full uh measure of the of the sentence but even with William Quinn he was kind of saved by prisoners uh I don't want to say the guy's name wrong so I won't but one of the prisoners came across his unconscious body and he got four of his fellow Muslims to carry him down the stairs uh, uh, or or carry him to the state controlled side of the prison on a mattress. And they had to slog through like water because all the the piping system was a mess. There was blood on the floor. It, It was a real harrowing like journey. And once the police get William Quinn's body, they don't send him to the hospital. They just leave him on the side of the on the side of the prison, and, and it takes up to an hour for him to go see a, a doctor. And even then, when he's at the hospital, he's never sent to ICU. Uh, there there are a bunch of problems with the way he was treated, but he would be dead in a few days from uh, the the severe brain injury that was inflicted by no doubt the prisoners who were rioting, but probably could have been helped along if the state or police someone stepped in and and tried to give him adequate care, but that just didn't happen.
1: Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great podcasts like Mark Vinette's History of North America Podcast. Go over to Parthenonpodcast.com to learn more. And now a quick word from our sponsors. The I think it's really interesting to get into the political and economic geography of New York and why these prisons are located where they are. So most of the population of New York, I think it's well over half. It might even be closer to 60% of the population lives in the New York City area. So right there, you're going to see that the prisoner populations weighted more in that direction. And I think it's weighted even way more in that direction. Most of the prisons are in rural upstate New York. And it's... It's interesting because in New York state, it's basically cut in half by the, the form. Well, it still is the Erie canal, but there's a series of cities that were once pretty wealthy, but even by the sixties and the seventies were in post industrialization. So you have Albany and Syracuse, Rochester, uh, Buffalo and uh, smaller towns that were wealthy at one time. Uh, But we're kind of on the downward spiral. But then you had places like Attica that never really were wealthy at all. They were just pretty much rural towns that were at a crossroads. I think, yeah, Attica might have had I think you mentioned that they had a dog food factory and I think Mm -hmm. they may have had a factory that made um, horseradish sauce like that's all they had. And, yeah, it
0: wasn't a very productive uh, a segment of the state for sure. No,
1: and for even um, and back then it was a a lot more removed. Even t- today, the closest city was Rochester, that was about an hour and a half away, and I think Buffalo is about an hour and a half away. That's where the closest hospitals were. They didn't have very yeah. good local hospitals there. So, I mean, you're really talking. Mm-hmm communications wise like everything even in the 60s and the late 70s like how remote of an area a place like attica was from auburn is in auburn which is right outside of syracuse but that prison i think was built like either the late 1700s or the early 1800s have you ever seen it it's terrifying just from the outside
0: (laughs) i can imagine i i i i'm not sure I I haven't seen a picture of Auburn specifically, but but Attica looks just as foreboding, and that was built much later, which yeah. is, is quite something.
1: I think I um share a little of my own personal experience. I interviewed for a job at Attica, but I didn't wind up taking it. I was a um it was right when I graduated from teaching school, and I was just looking for a summer job and. The jails all had uh, all the New York state prisons had summer jobs. So I applied for one for them and I eventually got one at Wendy Correctional Facility, which is also a maximum security prison, uh, about an hour, 45 minutes from Attica. And so I worked there and kind of got a little bit of an inside. The most I'd say the most interesting part to uh, learn about was I got the uh, prisoner handbook which was really interesting. And I read that cover to cover just because it was fascinating. You kind of saw the evolution of things. Of, uh, there was a grievance process, and a lot of that stuff had been put into place after Attica. Uh, I, I mean, really, that whole time period, and probably up until this day. I, this was uh, this was maybe 15 years ago, so I'm a little out of touch with what the the newest is. But I felt like even at that point, which would have been – a good 35 years after attica that it was still a post attica system mm-hmm. in place and that that was for the good the better and for the worse like both yeah. of it was yeah. an, a post attica system because
0: just like um, what you were saying there was no communication there was very little uh, uh elasticity between counties and and state apparatuses, there was no way to communicate one with the other. Even in Attica, I mean, uh, the phones, you could only make one phone call at a time. So if you go to, if you go to call up, you'd have to wait until whoever just called up was done making their peace. And, and on top of that, there was no system in place for a riot. So like you were saying, for better or worse, I'm sure following Attica, that was the first thing on everyone's mind is we need to make. A comprehensive system for when a riot happens, what we're going to do. And you see, uh, probably an even worse riot in, in New Mexico state prison, uh, in like the eighties after this, but that didn't have to do with state violence. That was, uh, like a gang situation. And it just evolved into another bloodbath with the protective custody once they broke in there. But Attica wasn't like that at all. I mean, in the end, uh, during the occupation the siege whatever you want to call it uh by the prisoners three prisoners did die uh two were accused of treason uh because they spoke to a, a news team and then another guy was just raving incoherently about how we're all gonna die the end is nigh he was that turned out being right but he was also he also ended up being murdered um this wasn't like a uh authority-based decision they weren't like oh let's kill these guys before they you know, do whatever. This was like someone just snapped and, and killed these three people who they assumed were were, were snitching or, or whatever. But uh, like you were saying, there's a serious divide between New York City and New York State. You see it even in this most recent election. Um, uh, New York State voted overwhelmingly Republican. A lot of our state, or the state legislatures of New York are, are now Republican because there's a, a very, very deep divide between the urban and the the rural suburban. And just like you were saying, you have some background with with New York state prison, so do I. My grandmother worked for Nelson Rockefeller. She was the uh, his only Spanish speaking assistant. Uh, so anyone in New York state who was Latino who sent a piece of mail to to Nelson Rockefeller at that time, my grandmother probably read it and responded. And on top of that, my grandfather was a teamster He, he worked as a garbage man for years and he was, uh, he was not a witness to, but he was around during the, the tombs uprising. The tombs was like this, the, the the jail system in New York City. That's what they called it because it was such a a hellhole. Um, and and this rose up, but he would, but previous to this and after this, I assume he would smuggle in, he would smuggle in playboys. He would (laughs) smuggle in cigarettes for the, for the um uh for the prisoners and everything, and they loved them for it. They let them like eat with him, and uh, it, it it was very. It's a very interesting that that uh our lives are so intertwined by by the prison system, and so many people's lives are. I mean, this is a, a two million person uh chain of suffering. That's how many people are in jail right now, which is an absurd number compared to how many people live in America compared to the prison system in other countries. It, it it speaks to a very severe imbalance in the way we do things.
1: I think a big part of it is, um, and what I saw, it was really, it was a punitive system that was pretending that it was a... A penitential system like they they spent gobs and gobs of money on rehabilitation. But the, at the really at the core, I felt like it was just housing people that mm-hmm. they didn't really have a philosophy on how to reform people. Yeah. Despite, I, I mean, half of the prison, the half of the employees were seemingly some sort of social worker or, or another, but they just didn't have a a philosophy. Like the education didn't really have a philosophy on what to make these people more yeah. educated and more purposeful. I, I, none of it. It just seemed like doing things to check off boxes. Yeah, we're you know we have an army of social workers. We have tons of teachers. We have all of this. But it didn't seem like there was a philosophy driving it. Like, this is how we're going to get these yeah. people. Because another thing is, like, you have the corrections officers who, even at that point, their base pay wasn't incredible. Like, I don't think anybody no. was going, has ever gone to become a prison guard to make a fortune. They can make a decent amount of money with overtime, but you're still working in the prison yeah. despite your overtime. And they, um, even I think to now they're minimally trained. Mm-hmm. For, yeah, for I've, their I've been job. watching.
0: Uh, yeah, I've been rewatching The Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> and there's a bunch of jokes about corrections officers in there. The 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 guard hands Homer the the nightstick. And he said, "This hand, this side's for holding. This side is for hitting." <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, "Okay, great. When does my training start?" And the the guard answers, "It just finished." <laughs>
1: Like um the Michael Smith that you brought up I, in his memoir, and I think this is pretty common that you got on the job training, like you said, like here's your stick, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, a an academy process, but I still think it's only a couple of weeks long. It's not um a psych- like when i went in for the training for the for being a teacher there for the summer there was a two day training and i would say it was a good training on for two uh, days <laughs> yeah for two days and, and i would have loved more of it and a lot of it was really which i think that hopefully that they're doing is the psychological training of how to deescalate and like, strategic de-escalation and strategic escalation, like, both of them, and yeah. that um really drilling into your head. And I think that this is—because uh, I think on all sides of it, we can very quickly demonize the inmates, and we can glorify them, and we can demonize the prison guards, and we can glorify yeah. them. And the administration is probably— just worthy of demonization but um Mm -hmm. it's easy to either demonize or glorify every side of it but they're all like in amongst the criminals of like the people i saw there were some guys who were just like they got caught up in some real bad stuff and they were they seemed like honest to goodness good people but there were some yeah bad 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 violent people in there that. Uh, uh, genuinely deserve like uh, we were allowed to look through their files, and we were almost encouraged to do it. And I, I reached a point. Uh, there was one I looked at it, and I just put it right back because, like, Ooh. if I had looked at that file any longer, like that would that'd be in my dreams. I still think of it to this day, and Yikes. it's like there. I it's such a complicated system that can be flattened out into two D very easily. And I think that that was like the one thing that I came out of it is it's a very complicated thing.
0: Yeah. it it And it's it's like you were saying, both sides are not to blame and both sides aren't the cause. They're both victims in a system that doesn't really work mm-hmm. uh, or at least doesn't work as well as it could be. Uh, certainly not as well as it could be. I mean, uh, it's like you were saying, I, I doubt how much more training there is now as opposed to. When Attica happened. And I, I'm not sure what level it is at or if they're teaching de-escalation or, or strategic escalation like you're talking about. I think it's so much about a push and pull. You have authoritarians on one side who want one thing and they're trying to push that way. Uh, and then you have the liberals on the other side who are trying to push this way. And they're trying to make it, you know, reform based while, while uh, the other people are trying to make it uh, punitive based. And in the end, you have this sort of two headed monster that doesn't know what it wants. And it's not doing really either.
1: Yeah, I think that that's probably the thing that it really that it turns into. It's just housing. And it's such a large number of people that it's people who are, you know, people who maybe need more. There's not and it almost seems like the counseling is one size fits all. Like there isn't that there's some people who need a, a very different type of counseling. Like there probably are people who are in there. Um, the, the unit, the particular unit that I was working with was with um, prisoners who uh, were mentally challenged. They weren't mentally challenged enough to be in a totally separate facility that are for people of, uh, you know, like a, a asylums or places, state hospitals, but they were definitely that mentally challenged to such a degree that if they were in a general population, that they would have been abused beyond all belief. And a lot of the guys like they had to almost be recruited for this particular unit because they saw the guards and the uh, administration saw that there were certain people who were, they were just abused and, We can get into the the school to prison pipeline that these people should have been picked up long ago. That uh, there was one particular guy. It was because he was so mentally challenged and he was so easily manipulated. The people on the street used him to do things that they know that he would have probably gotten caught for. And he did. And that's why he was in jail, is because he was manipulated on the outside and yeah. by criminal elements and that's why he's in jail does that person need the same sort of programming of rehabilitation that somebody who um is genuinely a, a criminal mind it's, it's totally different thing and i don't think that the systems are set up at all to deal with those because essentially the prison system is done on the cheap i think when mm-hmm. i was there that each meal per uh prisoner was set at something insane, like a dollar and some change per person. So that included their wow. napkins, the cleanup, the utensils, everything had to be done in under $2 per person per meal.
2: Holy
0: moly. Well, yeah. I mean, when that's the system you're working with and because both parties like to talk about being tough on crime, they love talking about that. That's one of the few things that is bipartisan in this country. Both parties love to be hard on crime. I mean, you want to look at Bill Clinton talking about you know, super predators or whatever he said, or, or you want to look at uh, uh Ronald Reagan talking about, you know, detroit uh welfare queens or or whatever it it, it's all it's all pretty obvious what's what's going on and it's very easy to demonize people who commit crimes because they committed most people yeah yeah, they committed crime what what do you (laughs) it's it's very hard to argue for that it's like you said it last time we were talking it it's it's very hard Uh, the easiest argument is usually the 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 one that wins out and it's very easy to be tough on crime it's a lot harder to be like oh we need to raise your taxes ever so slightly, so that these two million people, literally in bondage, have like an extra meal a day or an extra shower, and and that's really where the that's where the 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 tire meets the road. That's that's where it is, I, and and that's where it usually stops. The second. Oh, you're gonna raise my taxes? That's it, because that's really the only way. Or you keep investing in private prisons, which I think is 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 just as a big of a, a crapshoot as as anything else. Uh, maybe even a little bit worse, because you want to talk about profit. I mean, that's a completely profit-driven uh, apparatus. Then and and then I, I'm not sure if that's the solution. Maybe it is. Uh, I'm not sure. I think both of the systems, whether it's private or it's public, it's the
1: the Baptist and the bootlegger coalition, where they both they have diametrically opposed needs, but they wind up or viewpoints, but they wind up getting to the, they need the same thing. I think that the whole prison system, private or public, is it the incentive is to have people in there. You don't yeah. work if there's no prisoners like I think that that's become so ingrained. It's just like that. It's a, the U.S. is like this Gord, Gordian knot of intractable problems that you need to solve that before you have two million people in a prison sen, and system. Like that's a whole bunch of things have gone wrong before we have two million people sitting in prison.
0: Yeah, and and let's talk about the elephant of the room. A good portion of them are black. A good portion of them are Native American. A good portion of them are Latino. Uh, very few of the percentages are actually white. Obviously, there are more white people in this country. So there are more white prisoners. But if you look at the percentages versus population, it's kind of staggering. I mean, it's three times as many black people that are in prison that are c- compose the population that can't just be because that's the way it is. It doesn't, It doesn't it, it doesn't work for me. I need a I need a better argument than that. I think that we have a really problematic, uh, not only justice system, but but a, a, a corporeal punishment system. I, I mean, we have, like you were saying, it's all about the bottom line. It's all about the dollar. Uh, if you could throw more people in jail, you you get a little bit more money, and if you get a little bit more money, then you can take that extra vacation to Barbados this year, and and that's really where it ends, and it it stops being about humanizing people. It starts being about housing people, like you were saying. Yeah, I think, um,
1: also one other thing is the strangeness of the sixties and the seventies. All that stuff just came, all the social justice issues and issues of things like you had been saying, like really the race yeah. problem in the United States begins in 1865 after s- slavery. And so many things a hundred years later come to a, come to a head where it's a system that wasn't designed. And didn't really understand it. Like, could you think of it now if there was a a, a riot in a prison that's a, an uprising? It would never you don't hear about them now because they design the system that those things get crushed. Like, you're not going to have a thing mm-hmm. like Attica today because they have teams that it's special teams oh, yeah. that go and just break that up brutally. And right I away. Just, yeah. First right five
0: o- minutes of the uprising There's it, not even a, a chance for it to take a breath. And could you
1: imagine today that if something happened where they would negotiate with the prisoners, no, like uh, over the course not. of the weeks? And that's happened, um, in an, uh, in an episode of this podcast where, um, one of the mafia, um, people, Joey Gallo was mm. in a prison riot and he was a part of the negotiation. Crazy team. Joe. Crazy Joe. Yeah. He yeah. was, um, he was seen as somebody who could work between the, uh, Italian Irish. Uh, predominantly uh the prison system. And then he was friends with a lot of the African-Americans and the black Muslims. And he yeah. kind of worked in between. And that one, I can't remember what prison that was at, Uh but they were wow. happening all over the
0: place and they were negotiating. Could you imagine that happening today? It wouldn't. It wouldn't happen today. Uh, depending on the state, maybe. Maybe if it happens in Vermont, uh, Bernie Sanders would be mm. would be talking uh, talking with the prisoners. But uh, anywhere else, I don't see it happening. Even in like uh, like California. Even oh, in California, no, no. it would definitely wouldn't happen there. Uh, uh, and and like you were saying, it's it. This is all a response to the post attico world we live in. And now we should probably talk about the retaking. Uh, how that yeah, that's a, led yeah, up. a get into that so over time they're they're still debating uh the observers are debating with the prisoners, the prisoners are debating back with the observers, very tense situation uh eventually though, at some point the state just decides you know this is it you're going to accept the twenty eight points we put forward or or we're storming the place and and this was Nelson Rockefeller's choice he could have showed up there. And he was asked to show up there numerous times, at least, you know, individually, by individuals, uh, four or five times. And then just in general, by the news media, et cetera, probably dozens of times. But uh, each time he refused to show up, he felt that if he was there, he wouldn't be able to fix the problems. And it would just make his administration look weak when they were trying to look incredibly strong with, the, you know, a new election coming up. And. And Nixon's the guy in charge. He wants to be able to kowtow to him and show that he's tough on crime too. He's not just like a liberal Republican, which is what he was sort of defined as previous to this. Um, so he says the National Guard's not going to lead this assault. It's going to be the state police. The state police have no plan for taking a prison. This isn't in the, the, the pamphlet. This isn't in the book. The National Guard do, does. Why they aren't allowed to do it is, uh, I feel they are, I mean, Nelson believed that New York state troopers should take their facility back. That was the argument. It didn't matter that the troopers weren't trained to use the rifles they were carrying. It didn't matter that, um, you know, the, most of the prisoners would be incapacitated already by the gas. We're going to drop on them. Uh, but this is what needed to happen. It was re it was led by the local Batavia unit in Batavia, New York, uh, Uh, troop A, um, they led the attack on the catwalk. And let me just talk about the loadout real quick. These were 270 rifles. They used unjacketed bullets, which go against the Geneva conventions. Uh, then there were hundreds of, um, shotguns brought in. All the shotguns were, uh, using buckshot and pellets and slugs. Bunch of people brought in personal weapons. One guy had an AR 15. One guy had a Thompson submachine gun that he fired at least 12 rounds off of. One guy had a Deer Slayer shotgun with 12 gauge, uh, uh, slugs in it. Uh, bunch of people brought in revolvers, 44 Magnum rifles, bunch of things like that. Um, it was, uh, a- and a big thing about this whole thing too is not only did William Quinn die, but the FBI using a thing called Co Intel Pro subtly dropped the hint that not only was he murdered by prisoners, he was castrated and he was thrown from a second, a second story building. So this was a, this inflamed all the state troopers who were, were sure that the people who rebelled were, you know, were absolute criminals and they were, they weren't seeking anything. uh, They weren't seeking a redress of grievances or, you know, human rights or anything. They wanted to just, you know, cause hell they wanted to to stir the pot they wanted to make america look weak and and if they could kill as many guards as they do it that's what they wanted to do like the 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 stand that the prisoners built to be heard in d yard it wasn't a stand it was a an execution platform where they're gonna behead the the hostages they still have um in reality the hostages were treated incredibly well they were given medicine they were given a place to sleep while all the prisoners just slept on the floor they slept on mattresses it wasn't a it it wasn't by any means uh uh it was a hostile occupation i suppose because they weren't supposed to be there but uh by any other sense of the word they were treated incredibly fairly much more fairly than any prisoner would probably be treated in american prison system today they certainly didn't have to strip naked and Get cavity searched or, or anything like that. They, they were just left to their own devices and the black Muslims among them and the, you know, more sympathetic of the prisoners formed human circles around them. Big Black Smith was the leader of the security detail for the prisoners. He wasn't religious. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a po- political guy. He was just six foot six. So it helps if your security detail leader is six foot six. Um, But yeah, the the assault is planned for around 10 a.m. on September 13th, 1971. First, they drop CS gas into the yard from helicopters. Now, CS gas isn't a gas, really. It's more of a powder. And this powder sort of attaches itself to oxygen. And it just sort of strangles whatever oxygen is in the air. Uh, In turn, this strangled anyone who didn't have a gas mask. Uh, who was anywhere near the prison. I mean, this was for everybody who was outside the prison, the news vans, everything. People who, the the observers who were in a a different room with a closed door were feeling the effects of the gas. And this made people throw up uh, uh, profusely. One guy said he threw up until he threw up blood. So if you want to talk about being incapacitated, every single person in D-yard is incapacitated right now. You don't need to fire a single shot Instead, they first clear the catwalks. So the catwalks, they have prisoners. Hostages are brought up to the catwalks because the prisoners quickly realize this is going to go down soon. So we need to let them know that we still are in control of these people's lives in some sort of way. Um, so they clear the catwalks. A hundred different shots ring out. A bunch of people are felled on the catwalks, mostly prisoners. Two hostages are killed on the catwalks. Mike Smith, is shot four times in what appears to be an intentional attack. Uh there were four rounds from I believe it's a Thompson submachine gun uh that uh go into his abdomen and they explode on impact. Uh one of the shells takes away a base the base of Mike's spine uh and a bunch of other ones just like stay crammed in there and just just burn him up. Uh he's saved this isn't the first time he was saved by Don Noble who is just his prison guardian, like uh, he pulled him out of the way uh, of a hail of bullets that were coming right for him. Um, And then from there, this assault takes nine minutes. So in real life, this would have taken a a blink of an eye. But in those nine minutes, something like 900 rounds are fired, or 300 rounds are fired. Uh, Countless pellets are fired. And each one of these pellets isn't just one pellet. It's about 14 different pellets Per, you know, pump of the shotgun. So uh, this would, this spread all over the place and it caused absolute devastation. People were just absolutely murdered. Kenneth Malloy, he was shot 12 times in the head by, uh, by, by two separate personal weapons. Two guards came up on him, ripped his skull apart. They literally, his eyes were ripped to pieces because the bone was fracturing in his skull. Um... Uh, another guy, uh, so, so in this time, there's countless, you know, instances of racism, of, of, of hate based crime, torture. Big blacksmith gets the worst of it. He, he's, uh, he's forced to sit on a, a weight bench for about five to six hours, uh, balancing a, a football on his chest. And the guards around him told him, if you drop the football, we're going to murder you. And they would drop like cigarette butts on him. They'd, let a round off and let hot shell casings drop onto his chest uh, all the while saying the most horrendous things. Cause this was the guy who's was accused of, of being um, William Quinn's castrator. So he was special, specially singled out and he was, he was beaten within a, a, an inch of his life following the torture on the table. He had to run a gauntlet. Everyone else had to run the same gauntlet, but he got it especially bad. Um, he faced, 60 officers alone. And they were hitting him with two by fours and, and batons and nightsticks, anything they could grab a hold of. He had both of his wrists broken by the end of it. So by the end, he's just like sort of grabbing his wrists, he's trying to protect himself. Um, his head is split open and then they play Russian roulette with him after he makes it past this gauntlet. That was a, a very favorite, um, tactic of the, of the, the CEOs after the retaking. It was to, to play shotgun it was shotgun roulette actually it wasn't russian roulette um and they would make people drink urine if they were thirsty it it was it was really horrendous i mean imagine the worst uh abuses of any third world country in south america or the worst abuses in any uh you know african country that's been ruled by the same dictator for 40 years this is what we're talking about and it's not like the investigations following this go any better. It's just as bad. It's just as disheartening. It's just as undemocratic. It's just as dehumanizing. I mean, witnesses are harassed. They're they're threatened. Uh, one witness who right at the end had a change of heart. He didn't want to tell on his guys. Uh, he had a gun pointed at his face. And what the guard asked the other guard, you see that black jump out the window? And and the meaning was clear it, you know, you're going to you're going to testify right now or we're going to murder you. Um, and this was the kind of state that it was in. This didn't happen in the Deep South. This didn't happen in, you know, no. uh, 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 Cuba or, or Venezuela. This happened in New York State, uh, the most uh, or arguably one of the most progressive states in the country, at, at least for the majority of the citizens. Uh, and it still hasn't not only has it not been really acknowledged, hasn't been apologized for. I mean, the most basic thing that I think you could do is apologize. And it's, it's again, a multi-party thing. It's not like just Republicans are refusing to apologize because they were the ones in charge. I mean, Democrats who supposedly support equal rights under the law and you know racial equality and everything refused to apologize. Kathy Hochul, who's the Democratic governor right now, said, "Oh yeah, people were really affected by that," and that that was it. That was all she had to say about it. She never, she didn't apologize. She easily, she easily could. I mean, it seems like a win. If I was a Democrat, I would be like, "Oh, I'm going to apologize for this right away." This is an easy political win for me. But you know, either she's she wants it to disappear. She wants the memory of Attica to disappear. She, um, is either worried that her original constituents in Erie County have a problem with it, or she's keeping it in her back pocket. Those are the only three options that are really available to her. I mean, uh, uh, I suppose she just doesn't want to cause a fuss. That's the most obvious one. She doesn't want to make anyone upset because even with the amnesty that was proclaimed for the Attica, um, attica victims following this uh the first people upset were the police unions and the and uh patrolman benevolence association uh they considered it a slap in the face that you know that this these crimes could go unpunished even though most of the crimes committed that day were done by new york state officials and new york state officers Really, the one I think who is most responsible is, is Nelson Rockefeller. I mean, at the end of the day, the buck stops there. Obviously, there were other people involved. Spiro Agnew was super involved with, uh, the FBI and getting information on the Attica people. Uh, Richard Nixon just sort of deferred to his judgment. Uh, so if he wanted to, Nelson Rockefeller could have made a difference, but. He chose not to for political reasons, which is fine. And in the end he was rewarded for it. He became the, the vice president under Gerald Ford. So in a lot of ways it 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 worked out well for him. It didn't work out for, you know, any of the forty people who were butchered. Uh it didn't work out for, you know, forty people have that's like what, uh five hundred family members, friends. Didn't work out for any of them who have to deal with the repercussions, uh uh, not only that, there were a hundred other people wounded. Um, you know, they have to live with that. People have to live with the racism they experienced that day. They have to live with the torture. Uh, and the police officers who may have committed murder have to live with that. I mean, the officer who's a, who supposedly killed Kenneth Malloy says he dreams about brains still because he he sees this guy's brains coming out of his head as he's blowing it apart uh and that's that's real it's a bunch of individual um acts of of horror that culminated in a state designed massacre and that's really what it was like you were saying everyone was the victim it wasn't just the prisoners it wasn't even the the hostages um because the hostages were were, were butchered too i mean most of the hostages didn't die on the catwalk. Only two hostages died in the catwalk. Most of them died in the hostage circle, which is pretty crazy. I mean, someone ran up to uh, a police officer, ran up to the hostage circle, and everyone on the catwalk saw this, and they started blasting too. So that spreading their shotgun blasts over, you know, 20 feet or something. It's going to go everywhere, and it's a miracle that anyone survived. That, especially in the hostage circle, it's a miracle so few people died. That did, I, I, I mean, it could have been, it could have been a dozen times worse. It could have been, you know, two hundred people dead easily, easily. But it, it, I guess, in that sense, there was some measure of restraint shown.
1: Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. I think you bring up the. I think the one of the most fascinating points is the politics. It's all political at, but you can basically take out Republican and Democrat. They're, it's just yeah. politics. Uh, mm-hmm. Nelson mm-hmm. Rockefeller was a liberal Republican. I mean, he was not exactly. some rock ribbed, uh, you know, right wing extremist. He was about as liberal as you could get, but he did this completely illiberal thing to, because you just don't know what else to do if i i do i want to appear weak or do i want to appear tough or somewhere in between or that you know do i want to solve this problem and sweep it under the rug that's what they they really want it was all about what could save face and then they give it to these people who they've compl- completely filled with hate like i would that's a study
0: to see like yeah totally brainwashed know, totally brainwashed
1: yeah cointelpro Pro jams the people's heads full of you know that pur- purposefully gins up as much hatred and then gives them an outlet for the hatred and i just i wonder if from the top of your head why in the 70s at this point there's such gluts of violence just everywhere it just it seems like the cork's been pulled out at this particular moment in the late sixties and the early seventies that we don't really see before that. And we really don't see much mm. of it after, but in that like maybe five years of just absolute violence.
0: Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with world war two. Honestly, um, you go back to world war two, America is fighting supposedly against fascism. It's fighting against anti-Semitism, And then when black veterans come home, they're lynched in their uniforms. Uh, people were seeing the hypocrisy laid bare right in front of them this this wasn't the city on a hill that it was supposed to be this wasn't some beacon of democracy in the world this was actually uh, some of the places were incredibly backwards and and the way we treat uh you know anything that's other even today that's that's how we've treated them the whole time i mean this isn't some New phenomenon where, you know, if people who are the other upri- have an uprising in America, they're always crushed. I mean, you want to go back to the first uprising in American history, the Whiskey Rebellion, that happened because poor people wanted to maintain their economic privilege of trading in whiskey. And the powers that be didn't want this. So they changed the law. They made it almost impossible to trade and barter in whiskey. And, you know, the the ulterior motives were obvious. George Washington was the number one producer of whiskey in the entire country. It's so
1: interesting you bring that up because it's basically as soon as the United States is formed, these backwoodsmen who like you said that's their only real trade good is whiskey they're saying the same things that george washington said like a week earlier when he wasn't in power and then as soon as he's in power he crushes them like the british were trying to crush him i I think that's a part that you can't even really teach in school because it's so discordant yeah and you, people try and you mention
0: it really quick and then you run away. Yeah, people,
1: <laughs> people try and brush it up. But I think if you really look at it, it's really hard to square that.
0: Yeah, I mean, but uh, it was it was the the first stamp. This is what America is. It's not made for poor people. It's not made for the other. It's not made for for different people who have a different opinion than, you know, the status quo. It was made for this burgeoning bourgeoisie. I mean, there's a reason why France, the Dutch, the Spanish all joined on the United States side because these were these were civilized folks who could who who wanted to to bring civilization forward, and and that's why they joined up there. It wasn't because this was some radical movement of uh, da, da, da da. I mean. If that was the case, we would have joined with the French Revolution when we when at the beginning, but we didn't. We waited until Napoleon was the emperor.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a, a reactionary revolution, not a radical revolution. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and it, it's it's like a it, it's just a, a hypocrisy that almost any country has to deal with. There are revolving factors. There were people uh, during the American Revolution who could definitely be considered radical. I mean, you look at someone like Sam Adams, super radical for his day. I mean, probably would be considered a terrorist today if, if he was still around. Uh, but there were also people who were extremely conservative. Uh, What's his name? John, John Dickinson, John Dickinson of, of Virginia. He was an extremely conservative guy who, who was even against independence. Uh, but in the end, he ended up fighting for America because he still loved his country. He just didn't love it that way. So you see this, uh, it's just this constant dichotomy. The more I look into history, the more I realize that these, uh, I don't know what to call them, opposing forces. Uh, I don't want to sound like too much of a Marxist, but uh, that's really what it is. These opposing forces throughout history, throughout time, they, they come together and the result is something like Attica, is something like the 60s and 70s. It's something like- World War II it's something like the American Revolution. They all sort of rhyme together in their own special way. And I mean African Americans have been being treated poorly in this country since its inception, since the since it first started. I mean, like you're talking about American history, uh uh or the American Revolution, African Americans were promised their freedom if they fought for the if they fought for George Washington and the national army. They didn't end up getting it. Uh, most, in most cases, I'm sure some probably did. Uh, but yeah, it's just something we have to contend with. And the thing that I think we should not do is just pretend like it doesn't exist or try to pass laws against it even being taught. I mean, this is a really, uh, strange place that we're in. And because we're so different, there's so many different opinions. Uh, I understand that. But there's a difference between having an opinion and then denying the right for someone else to have an opinion, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And going back around to prisons, I think it's so hard. Like, um, we've been in the series talking about people like John Gotti and uh, Vito Rizzuto, who were, I mean, they're not good guys. Let's not try and wash that over. I mean, they've murdered people, they've been responsible for murders, drugs. But then we're putting them in jails where they're basically vanished. You're in your cell for twenty three hours a day, and the only time you have outside of your cell is an hour in a cell that's just a little bit bigger than the cell you were in. You know, sometimes they don't even get to go into a place that even has any natural light. Yeah, yeah. And I, I even find I struggle with that myself. Like. We have to show some humanity. So if we're putting people away that we're saying that are absolutely incorrigible for life, but we're still treating them like that, like, why not just kill them? You know, like, I think that you're essentially killing them without your you're they're basically the the powers are they can't go all the way with the death penalty so let's just essentially give them the death penalty but oh we're anti death penalty but you're you're essentially killing them and then at the same breath if you look at John Gotti where somebody like Sammy Gravano gets out scot free and he gleefully admits he killed 19 people like that's the justice system we're working
0: with yeah Yeah, it's 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 quite something. We're definitely at a crossroads. I mean, but it feels like we've been at this crossroads for like 150 years. Yeah, I just don't know when it's gonna like, uh, it's gonna snap and it's gonna snap one way or the other. Uh, Either people are going to support reform or they're going to support punitive measures. And they're going to support like you're saying, just just get rid of them. You know, uh, it's plenty of people support that I'm sure. People who are listening to this right now are hearing about the retaking and they'll be like, that, that's what they deserve. They broke the law. That's just what happens. And there is, of course, that, that level of thinking. But like you're saying, this argument doesn't go around toward white mafioso for some reason. Like it's not the same thing. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's us as a country. It's, it's our big, our big sin as a nation, I think. Is not only the, the prison industrial complex, but the way we treat, uh, different people of different religions, ethnicities, whatever. It's, it's a part of us and it's a part, probably a part of humans. I mean, I, I I don't know. That doesn't mean that it's good. That doesn't mean you should encourage that part of you. That's, that's your, that's your Neanderthal talking. I mean, (laughs) that's your, uh, that's your really terrified. You know, there's only 20,000 of us left in the entire world. We need to preserve our, our way of life thinking. That's, that's where that comes from evolutionarily. Uh, but that, that doesn't have any place, I think, in society anymore. I think we, sh- we can confidently move past it.
1: Yeah. I think instinctually we want people who've done wrong things to be punished and, I think we all struggle with that, that we want them to get really punished. I think a funny thing when we were when I taught in the prison was on Fridays, we would watch movies and sometimes the movies would be cops and robber movies. And these criminals, a lot of them were doing life sentences to a man. They always rooted for the police (laughs) <laughs> in these movies like you would think that there would even be one rebel who is anti-police yeah. and they to a man like i think instinctually when you would strip it away and i'm sure if you would talk to them on a political basis they were all against the police but when seeing it presented fictionalized they would uh, they would root for the the quote-unquote good
0: guy and yeah. root against the bad guy well it's like with anything it's how the story is presented i mean yeah you could present it uh, the other way and i'm sure there have been movies like that but uh yeah. for the most part that's the the way it, it the way it's presented is the way it is uh it's not how it is it's how it appears to be oh that
1: would be an interesting experiment to run to have uh, to have that uh the script flipped so to speak on that uh-huh. i'd love to see that maybe i'll go try and get a job again in the in the summer um i, I think to wrap up for today from what you learned in the Attica riots and from the and from the just that general time period is there one thing that could be changed to make things better or do, does the whole system really have to be evaluated can we make the system better with the prisons
0: uh following the riots there was an initiative to have prisoners a part of the decision boards for um, you know, uh, uh, for the prison, uh, they would give their two cents on what they needed or what, you know, their fellow prisoners needed. Um, that seemed to be a good idea, but what happened is they were just ignored. You just ignore this one individual who was voted on by their peers. And by the end, no one even wanted to run for the position. Someone was just chosen because. No one even was voting for it because they knew it was just a nonsense position. But if something like that could be done, maybe that would be better. Um, maybe if we gave even a little bit more money to, to prisons, then that would go a long step forward. Um, more training for correctional officers. Um, I think that a lot of times, yeah, I, I think that that's pretty, that, that's a, a pretty general statement, but giving them more money is obviously easier said than done. It would be nice if we, you know, just held back like, I don't know, $20 million that we were going to give to the Ukraine or, or to Ukraine, sorry, uh, or to the military industrial complex. If we could give that to prisons, that wouldn't be a bad idea. But again, it, the, the first argument from either side take your pick is going to be oh they're trying to they're trying to go easy on crime they're not they're not enforcing the laws like they should be this is america if you break the law this is what happens uh and and this is i mean we know the arguments and it's just gonna be that at nauseum so uh i would like it if um something like that happened but again i think that that would be the response. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a clear cut answer. I uh, and even if there was, it would be something so out of reach. Like, oh, stop using people for profit. They would politicians would hear that and be like, "What do you mean? What? Yeah. What do you mean? No. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think that the it's always a problem of obviously there's some really structural problems that need to be fixed. And there's probably there's very little will to fix any of those problems, and so is slapping some paint over the rusted wall really going to solve the problem? No, but it looks a little better until so the rust comes back, and then do we paint it again or do we really fix the problem? Then and you just think, blame the painter. Yeah, and it yeah. Just, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, to to follow that metaphor through, and it just it keeps getting bounced back and forth until you have a real problem. And I feel like in a lot of ways that we're really at this point getting on 50 years from Attica. I did my math wrong where that um there's some serious problems and is that going to boil over now? Is it maybe never going to boil over? But the the problems that happened at Attica really haven't been sufficiently
0: addressed even half of a century later. If anything, they've gotten worse. I mean it's just as overcrowded, if not more so than it was then. Maybe, uh, politics isn't as big of a issue in prisons as it was then. Um, but that could change very easily. I mean, everyone talks about us being in the new sixties or I, I hear that all the time. So it, it could very easily happen again. I'm not sure if another Attica uprising happens again, but maybe another pretty bad riot. Uh, uh, I think that is, is very possible. And, and that would be, that would be shocking. And, probably what would happen if that happens is you just double down on on being even stricter. That, that probably, sadly, what it would be. I want to
1: thank you so much for coming on. We've really just scratched the surface of what you talked about in your series and your series of just scratching the surface of the, what was going on and what's going on with the uh, penal system in this country. But mm-hmm. I think we've given people a good place to definitely start off to go listen to your uh, episodes and then maybe go learn a little bit more about this, this whole situation. If people want to go listen, which I highly, highly recommend they do, how can they find your
0: podcast? So you can find it wherever podcasts are. It's the the Turning Tides podcast. Um, We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on any of them. They take your pick.
1: Well, uh, thanks again. I definitely, uh, definitely go and listen to that episode and go listen to your series on the Risorgimento and on, uh, the history of Puerto Rico. You're, you've got a, a wide spectrum of different things that you're looking at. Is there any, can you give
0: us a little sneak of what might be coming up? So what's coming next is, uh, the life of Emir Timur, as he's known to history, Tamerlane. Uh, he was an Asiatic conqueror. Uh, very little is, is, is really documented about him. It's a very niche, niche subject. He rose out of Central Asia and his empire expanded from the gates of China to Cairo, uh, south to Baghdad, up north to the gates of Moscow. So this guy had a, a huge, huge expanse of territory and he built it all basically by himself uh people talk about Alexander the Great but he had his Macedonians i mean this guy had to forge an alliance of tribal confederation like a tribal confederation of peoples to even get into the get out of the gate and and after that i'm uh, uh setting sail i'm i'm getting on my prahu and we're setting sail for uh singapore we're going to talk about the orang Laos, how they discovered the island, how they created the first initial settlements there, up through uh, Stanford Raffles, who's one of the most interesting, weirdest dudes in history, how he founded the modern colony, the British colony of Singapore, uh, up through the imperial Japanese invasion and and desecration of the place for years. Oh, wow, that's awesome. I can't wait to listen to all of that. Thank you again for coming on, and uh, you're always welcome. Oh, that's awesome! I, I I love so much being on. It's a lot of fun to to talk to you. I I think we should definitely uh, talk again about some mafioso stuff. That sounds oh, like a lot absolutely. of fun. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I'd love to talk about um uh Lucky Luciano. He's he, he's a a far off relative, a far flung relative of mine. So. Yeah,
1: let's definitely do that. I think uh, people will love that. And a deep dive into uh, Lucky Luciano is that uh, you can always talk about him. He's one of the most fascinating characters, I would dare say, in American history.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Probably responsible for us winning World War II in uh, yeah. a lot of ways.
2: Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Text the word HISTORY using the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. Jeff in Indiana lost 55 pounds with Calitrin. Lily in Tennessee shed 42 pounds. Beth is sleeping much better and her joint aches have eased up considerably. Text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply,